This is number six in a series of Christ occupied is greater than self-occupied. I want to start today with a little something different. It's a very partial history of the major movements of God in the last 120 years. I'm not trying to get them all right. I'm not trying to get them perfect. I'll probably leave some major people and events all out. But you got to think about these guys living at the same time. John G. Lake lived from 1870 to 1935. You had Smith Wigglesworth living from 1859 to 1947. These men, these were men that raised multiple people from the dead. Uh, between them, probably millions of miracles. And I don't. This stuff is documented. Uh, there, these men had a lot of results. You had the Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles that went for three years from 1906 to 1909, documented services of the Shekinah glory of God floating around in these services. They had them every night, almost like you'd see a, like a, a snowfall out of the air, come through the air, hit the ground in these services, but it was the glory of God. It looked like dust. It looked like gold dust falling from heaven. You can Google all this. If, if this, is, this is not made up. This was a time when the power of God was displayed through many people. A lot of missionaries had a lot of results around the world. We go into the 50s. There was a major, major healing revival. Documented healings. Oral Roberts had a tent that held 3,000 people. He traveled around the country. He was one of the f- few guys in that era that did not, one of the few preachers that did not die young, that had all those miracles. Um, there was a man named Jack Coe. He was an evangelist. He was very popular. Many, many healings, major miracles. He was a traveling minister. He had one major vice. Uh, he had, he, a double Jim Hammond, he committed the a sin of gluttony. Um, say Jim Hammond might eat two, three steaks in a, in a, in a sitting. He would eat five or six. Um, he, he was also known to be very mean-spirited. Um, Kenneth Hagin Sr. was sent by God to warn him. And uh, Jack Coe wound up dying at a very young age. Another guy named William Branham that I've talked about before. Um, you can look him up, see tape on him. Uh, you can see piles and piles of crutches, wheelchairs, hospital beds. There's even video of people getting right out of their beds. People that have been stricken to beds and wheelchairs for years got up and walked right out of his services. He was a tremendous prophet also. He'd call out social security numbers, uh, addresses. Um, well, he started to introduce himself. He got in pride. That's why I think the next, when this end time revival hits, it's going to be through a multitude of people. You're not going to see one man him working through one man or one woman. Um, and I, I think it's going to become more through, through the body itself. Um, but even as he was operating in this type of power, he got in such pride, but, but the power didn't leave him because the Bible says the anointing comes without repentance. He started introducing himself, and he actually believed that he would have someone come on at the beginning of his services, that he was the fulfillment of the promise of God in Malachi 4, 5, where it says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the Lord. He thought he was Elijah the prophet. Uh, Branham believed uh, he was announcing the second coming of Jesus, just like John the Baptist announced the first. 
Uh, he had millions of healings across the United States. Uh, wound up dying in a car accident. As he was dying, he reached over and laid hands on his wife, who was already dead in front of people. Uh, revived her uh, through the power of God, and then died himself. And I don't think it's coincidental that his his head was twice as big as its normal size from the accident. A lot of these guys died early because they had these vices, these sin problems, and they got results from the pulpit. But with the knowledge we have now, I believe they were under such condemnation and such guilt that their lives were cut short. And, you know, we can go into the 60s. You had the Jesus movement. Uh, Dennis Burke can tell you all about that. If you ever listen to his testimony, that's where he was saved. Um, she wasn't part of, in my opinion, the Jesus movement, but one of the most powerful ministers in a long, long time, Catherine Kuhlman in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there's film all over on her. Just You can almost see it on her uh, when she's preaching. Many people that would come and try to heckle her. She had a lot of, lot of resistance because she was a woman preacher. Um, it wasn't popular to be a woman preacher, 60s, 70s, even 80s. Um, they would come and they would come to heckle her. Her critics would often fall out under the power of God right in their seats. But the, the Jesus movement was predicated on the love of God. In the late 70s and 80s, you had the faith movement. Nobody taught anything about, really about faith before that. In the 90s, you had the prosperity movement. In the 2000s, you had the grace message was revealed. Let me give you this scripture here that kind of lines up with what I'm trying to get across there's a point to this, Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, to everything there is a season and a time for every matter or purpose under heaven, for everything, everything. My point in saying all of this is there's seasons for everything, there are appointed times for everything, just like when electricity was released into the earth, but that power was always available. That power could have always been tapped into way before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. In the 1950s, when these guys were getting healing, healings, they didn't even have half of the revelation and the knowledge that's come out of the Bible because they weren't supposed to. It had not been revealed yet. They taught with the revelation and understanding that had been released at that time. Remember, we talked about electricity last week, how it's a form of power. The potential for electricity was there for Alexander the Great, for the Roman Empire. It was there for Napoleon, for, for, for all of these, these empires. It, it was not tapped into but until the late 1800s. Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and at a time and a time for every matter or purpose. There's a time for every healing. There's a time for every sermon. There's a time for every life to be touched. And all that to say, you guys, I often go into the 80s and the 90s and, and what I was taught. And I'm not bashing on those preachers. And um, that's not what I'm trying to do. They were teaching with the understanding and the revelation that had been revealed to them then that had been revealed to them. In the 80s, it was not yet the season for Christians to even realize they could prosper. I'm telling you, they, we were at a, 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 before my parents started this church, that a, a, I remember being a little kid. Uh, you know, they, uh, Church of God, 
I don't, you know, this is a type of denomination, um, was teaching, uh, you know, you, should, you shouldn't have money. They, they condemned you if you had money. It, it was popular to, to be a poor Christian. But then how are you going to prosper through God if you don't even know about faith? See why, how the faith movement had to come first? They were teaching broken fellowship, partial forgiveness in the 80s, even in the 90s, because that's the only revelation they had. For the guys that are still teaching broken fellowship and partial forgiveness now, I have no excuse for them. I don't care how long they've been doing it. And, I, you know, it's, it's either pride or they're just not looking at the scriptures. After all these years of these guys studying the Bible, the, all the monks and all the, the saints and going way, way back. Think about this, how the, there's all the revelations and new understandings. And I'm not talking about guys who's taking one scripture and trying to make a doctrine. Um, that's why I try to give you 30 to 50 scriptures a week to back up what I'm telling you. I also heard personally before my parents started their church, you know, that's that on how, how, you know, they, they misread that scripture for years, you know, on money and how, how you, you know, you, you should be poor. There's something wrong with you. I sat in some of these services. But you know what? If Christians don't even understand that they can prosper, how are they ever going to stand about grace and New Testament righteousness? Grace, you know, i.e. him giving you favor you don't deserve. I still have people that don't think it's right and feel guilty for asking. I still meet them out in the lobby every week, asking God for more than one thing a week because that's what they've been taught in other churches. They're being selfish. If you really study the Bible, God wants to give you good gifts. Not like Santa Claus. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to give you good gifts, more so than any father on this earth. But you know, the prosperity movement couldn't have happened without the faith movement first. The grace movement couldn't have happened without people understanding that God would financially bless them. What I'm trying to get across by this, if you look at the history of how God has worked in the last 120 years, you can see almost God systematically introducing things leading up to this point. First, it was healing, then from healing to love, from love to faith, faith to prosperity, prosperity to grace in the early 2000s. And so all preachers have different callings, different slants on, on what they preach, how they preach. And, um, but you know, I will tell you, we are in a different time. We are moving into a different season. I know it in my heart. I know it in my heart. So, so listen to what I'm about to tell you. Acts 27 through 12. On the first day of the week when we were assembled together to break bread. Break bread. What, what's the Greek meaning of that? Take communion. That's what it says in the Amplified. Paul discoursed with them, intending to leave the next morning. He kept on with his message until midnight. Well, that's impossible for me to do because we have an 11 o'clock. But now there were numerous lights in the upper room where he was assembled. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting in the window. He was born down with deep sleep as Paul kept on talking still longer. And finally, completely overcome by sleep, he fell from the third story and was picked up dead. Fell out the window at church and died. 
because it's sleep. So I, w- I wouldn't recommend sleeping in church. But Paul went down. Paul ran down there, bent over him, and embraced him. And basically resurrected him right on the spot. When Paul had gone back upstairs, they took communion again, and then they ate. And after he had talked confidently and communed with them for a lot longer, until daybreak, wow, they took the youth home alive. So the miracle happened straight out of Paul speaking. Speaking. Someone was raised from the dead who'd heard this guy preach for six hours But what was in him? What had he heard? We're talking about hearing. Look look at this one. You've got the first Gentiles ever saved in the New Testament. They were Italians, Acts 10, 44 through 46. While Peter was speaking to these Italians, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone in the room listening to the message. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were surprised and amazed because the free gift of the Holy Spirit had been bestowed and poured out largely even on the Gentiles. These are the first non-Jews ever to receive Jesus. Notice it doesn't have them saying a prayer of salvation, and I'm not coming against that, but the Bible I can show you in many, many places. If you just believed he died and rose again, you will be saved, all right? If you just believe it in your heart and what the words Peter was speaking exactly when these people got saved and got the gift of tongues all in one shot, all in one shot, what were the words? Let's look at Acts 10, 43 in the King James. What were those words? Those exact words. This is what Peter said, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Boom. And it landed. It landed in that place. All right? These people that knew nothing immediately were saved and were speaking in tongues. What does remission of sins mean? Well, it gives you the definition in Hebrews. Right out of the second time, the new covenant is mentioned. Hebrews 10, 18. Now, where there is absolute remission, there's the definition right after that. What's the definition of remission? which is the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, but you, most, most, most preachers stop there. And cancellation of the penalty. Huh? Forgiveness and cancellation of the penalty. So, listen now, two, two things. Paul and Peter were both speaking when things happened. Do you get what I'm trying to get across to you? I'm just gonna keep doing this until something happens. There's, there's plenty of examples in the New Testament. You know, you, it's, it's not just about healing. You could get a word of wisdom. That's a gift of the Spirit, which is free. You don't have to do anything to get that, but listen. They were hearing. All those people were hearing. They were hearing at the time. A word of knowledge, something you need for your business or for your wayward child or for healing or get your healing as It's being spoken, and if not this week, then next week when the Mac attack is back. (laughs) Wow, I didn't even even try to do that. Mac attack, back. Do you notice anything different about me today? You're handsome. Wow. 
I don't want to say that, but see, so yeah, because of the TV lights, they, there's a glare, um, and so because of the TV lights, they, they put ma- uh, uh, makeup on the speakers, okay? And uh, <clears throat> I thought I would try it without makeup today, and none of you even noticed, did you? <laughs> Next week, I'll be introducing a, a line in the bookstore called Five Minute Makeup for Men. They said, you can look better than your wife in five minutes. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Joke. Don't write in on that one. Listen, I want to start with this. Uh, And and this is going to take me into a Saturday night that I I do in a couple weeks when I'm back to answer this question. Why did it has to do with the curse? Christians living under a curse. All right? the curse of the law, to be specific. And the Bible has a lot to say about it in the New Testament. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why, you know, not just why did he have to die. We know, if you've listened to the last five weeks, uh, you've had 133 scriptures to back up the fact that he died so you could have, for beginning, to get any blessing at all, you had to have complete in total forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future, and everything goes out from there. But I'm asking, why did he have to die on a cross, or you could say, as the Bible calls it, on a tree? It's gonna take me two sermons to answer this. What is the significance of him being crucified, nailed to a cross, what used to be a tree? It's by the shedding of blood that sins are atoned for. Atoned means covered. Why did it have to be on a cross? Couldn't he have shed blood by other means and still attained the same result? The capital crime in Israel at the time of Jesus for blasphemy was not crucifixion. It was stoning. They just threw stones at people until they died. A torturous way to die. Crucifixion, according to uh, history was an idea uh, dreamed up first by the Assyrian Empire, one of the first major, major empires. Then the Persians proceeded to crucify people. That's present day Iran. The Romans, who a lot of people think invented it, just made it really popular. And so, why did Jesus die on a cross? This can release an understanding in you that will help you walk in the blessings. We're talking about getting blessed and why people aren't being blessed, multiply blessed. And, and so during the time of Jesus, the punishment of blasphemy was executing by being stoned. Christ was killed on a cross. What is the significance? Let's look at, the, at Deuteronomy 21, 22. It says, if a man has committed a sin, this is the law, you should read some of this stuff. You know what they used to do with a rebellious child? A rebellious child they would bring to the gate and stone him to death. This, see, to understand the mercy of God, you have to understand the severity of God and the justice of God. He's not just going to say, uh, 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 let's just be nice now and let everybody do everything they want to do. Do you understand? The, the, you have to understand... You, you, the, the severity of God. And so it says, 
If a man was committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death. And then after he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. All right? After he's put to death. Many scholars think that the cross Jesus was crucified on up there on Golgotha, um, the beam was already in the hill. The straight up and down beam. This contested both ways. Um, but there are many, many scholars think that that beam wasn't in because the, the way his bones all came out of joint, which says in Psalms, his bones were all out of joint, was from them dropping that cross into the hole. When he's hanging there by nails. And so he carried at least the horizontal bar, the crossways bar, um, tried to carry it up the hill. First Peter 2.24, he personally bore our sins. Sins, right? Your sins, what you're going to commit tomorrow. And if you haven't heard any of these, go back to last week and the week before. He died for your sins, past, present, future. And, and it says, on a tree, as an altar, he offered himself on it that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that doesn't mean act like a perfect Christian. New Testament righteousness is defined as cleared from all guilt. So that we might live in clearance from all guilt is what that means. By his wounds... You were healed. Deuteronomy 21, 23. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is accursed by God. Thus you shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. The word hang means to suspend. And I'm going to, the next sermon that we do, I'm going to take you to a, oh, it's a great situation uh, with David trying to clean up for Saul and some of the stuff Saul had done to th- these people called the, the Gibeonites. He had broken covenant with them and some people had to die. For the land to come out of famine, some people had to die under the law, under the old covenant law. And so it'll help you understand some things as it did me. We're talking about getting into detail of curses, how you're redeemed, and how as a Christian you can operate under the curse of the law of the Old Testament law as a modern-day Christian. How do we know? It's all over Galatians, it's all over Hebrews, and it's all over Romans. In the Old Testament, there's an incident where the children of Israel were in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. When they crossed through the land of Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, the king of Moab was afraid of the two and a half million Israelites walking through his country. If he would have just left them alone, everything would have been okay. But, but he was trying to stop them from crossing, so he hired this famous, uh, you call him, it's disputed whether if he was a prophet, backslidden prophet, uh, a, a, a warlock, a male witch. Um, I've heard preachers call, his name was Balaam, call him the half past six prophet because he had a reputation that whoever he cursed, 
that curse really happened. He was like 100 for 100 on curses. So this king hired this warlock to curse, curse these people, two and a half million Israelites. So every time this guy tried to curse them, God would change the words coming out of his mouth. They tried it three different times from three different mountains. And it's a funny story because the king and his entourage are up there. They're paying this guy a lot of money. He's, all right, you ready? Let's curse him. And he gets ready to curse him, and then he speaks a blessing over him. And the king throws a fit. Let's try it from a different mountain. They tried it three different times. The guy didn't want to bless him. He was, he was not trying to bless him. He was trying to curse him, but God took control of his mouth and made him pronounce a blessing three different times. Let me tell you something. You want to get into the dark magic, the arts, the Satanism has become extremely prevalent in this day and age if you're paying any attention at all. <laughs> We've got witches that are very common in this day and age. You've got white witches in New Age churches, Christian churches, we've got it all. But all that, I will tell you, it's a common thing. If you ever spend any time in Asia, parts of Asia, where I've been many times, this is pretty commonly known, these people in the dark arts, it's a known thing. They're afraid to curse a Christian that speaks in tongues because that curse that they put on these people, comes back, bounces back. Those demons come back out of anger, right? And it gets on the cursor, right? This is commonly, commonly preached. There's a lot of power in the name of Jesus. I believe we are gonna see it. I believe it's for such a time as this. So when this warlock tries to curse the people of Israel, God turns the curse into a blessing three different times. The children of Israel weren't, they were outwardly rebellious. They were constantly usurping Moses' authority. They were complaining. It didn't matter if bread fell from the sky to feed two and a half million every day. It didn't matter if 10,000 birds a day fell from the sky to give them dinner. It didn't matter they were being led around by a flaming cloud. It didn't matter that the Red Sea parted for them and they saw it. It didn't matter they saw a whole country practically destroyed through the plagues to set them free. They're always complaining. They're very rebellious. Really? They were just normal people. They're sinners. The reason why God did not allow these curses to affect them by a guy that was 100% is because they were covered. Another word is atoned for. They were covered by the blood sacrifices of the animals that they had sacrificed. The blood of these animals covered their sin. As long as they worshiped the true God, these sacrifices were effective in protecting them. This prophet, though, uh, what he did was he told the king, what we do is, let's, let's get a bunch of women, Moabite women, let's send them into the camp, that you know, they worship idols, and they will marry these Moabite women and get them to slowly exchange gods. And that's when they started going downhill. 
is when they started to exchange gods. And so you have to know that this sacrifice, could we put the sculpture up? This sacrifice doesn't just cover your sin like the animal sacrifice does. This sacrifice totally eradicates your sin. Okay? Totally eradicates it. Otherwise, we should have just stayed with animals. And so, the Bible says, as Christ is, so are you. As he is, so are we. As he is, so are you in this world. In this world. In this world. Not when you get up to heaven. As he is, present tense, at the right hand of the Father, so are we supposed to be. One thing I think you have to discover during your Christian walk is what the Bible means in the New Testament when it says, in our flesh, in our bodies, dwells no good thing. No good thing. And we'll get to that scripture. The faster you come to the realization that in this body dwells no good thing. No good thing. The faster your relationship with God will grow. You know, Christians feeling very disappointed with themselves. I talk to people in the lobby every week under condemnation. They feel shamed before God, right? So there's no confidence. There's, they're guilty before God. I, I see it every week. Have you ever been disgusted with yourself? Do you know that that's trusting in yourself when you're disgusted with yourself in regards to your Christian walk? That's trusting in yourself. If you don't trust in yourself so much, you wouldn't be so disgusted with yourself, right? When you condemn yourself. If you don't, if you don't trust in yourself in the first place, there's not as much disappointment when this flesh fails. You know yourself. The Apostle Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. You can be in the midst of a holy, godly, amazing praise and worship atmosphere in a church service and have evil thoughts come to you. And the very idea that you're shocked with the thoughts you're having right then says right there, you still expect some good out of your flesh. And the Lord has basically told us, your flesh is good for nothing. You can get offended at it. Let's look at it at the Bible. Romans 7, 18. For I know that in me, this is a guy that wrote over half of the New Testament, that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Let's just break, let's do this, this in halves. This verse in halves here. I want to take you to through the first half of that verse and through some different translations. The TCNT. Translate this as, I know that there is nothing good in me. I mean in my earthly nature. The Weymouth says, I know that in me, that, in my, that is my lower self, nothing good has its home. Talking about your body. The Knox translation, this is the Apostle Paul. Of this I am certain that no principle of good dwells in me. That is my natural, physical self. In the Taylor translation, listen to what he says. I know I'm rotten through and through, 
so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. Let's break down the second half of that verse. Let's start with the King James. For to will is present with me. I want to. You know, Paul talks about will worship. Will worship. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Listen to the God sin. I can will, but I cannot do what is right. Um, the tailor says, no matter which way I turn, I cannot make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. Are you convinced about your flesh, about your body? Read the whole chapter if you're not, because he goes on and on in great detail. This is why we need a savior. This is why we're trying, we're talking about looking at being Christ-occupied opposed to self-occupied. When you have blasphemous thoughts, evil thoughts, wrong desires in your thought patterns, that is your flesh. And they're coming. The Bible says God not only sent Jesus to die for your sins, it not only says that, but it also says that Christ risen becomes your new identification. We're talking about how God identifies you and how you should identify yourself through his eyes. It says in 1 John 4, 17, he's talking about as he is, that's Jesus. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Really? In other words, having said there is no good thing in my flesh, your true identification is in Christ who is currently at the Father's right hand. If you have Jesus in your heart, if you believe he died and rose again, that should be your identification. But no, a lot of people don't understand how God identifies them as he identifies Jesus. Therefore, they don't, you know the scripture, I was crucified with Christ. So he's trying to tell you. He looks at you as if you were crucified. He said, it's not I that live, but Christ lives in me. All right? Therefore, they don't understand. That means they don't identify themselves as being as he is. Jesus Christ, the man at the Father's right hand, is the measure of your righteousness with God, of your clearance with all guilt with God. E.W. Kenyon defined that word in the New Testament, righteousness. He's a Greek scholar. The ability to, anytime you see that, that, that word righteousness in the New, in the New Testament, it's so the ability to stand before God without a sense of guilt or inferiority, right. right? So I've just quoted two different Greek scholars on this meaning of New Testament righteousness. God is not looking to me for my own acceptance with him. God is not trusting in my flesh. For us to imply that law-keeping and Old Testament law-keeping Rule obeying can make you righteous in this current day totally negates, can we put the sculpture up again? It totally negates what he did on the cross. You take it away. Oh, you think you can do it then? Well, what did he go sinless for 33 years for? He replaced you there. He replaced you and, and God views you as if you did it. Not just, not just crucified, died, buried, and raised with him. That's how he looks at you. 
And so the very idea of trying to perform to please God is to have trusted in your efforts yourself. If you are performing to please God, you don't understand what was done on the cross. God is pleased with you. And I can prove it all day. Romans 7, 24 and 25, the same chapter where he said, there's nothing good that dwells in this body. He ends the chapter. He says, oh, unhappy, he's writing to Christians, pitiable and wretched man that I am. Who will release and deliver me from the shackles of this body of death? Thank God he will through Jesus Christ. You know what? People forget about this next scripture because it's another chapter. The, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. So the very next thing he says is, therefore there is no condemnation. You know what that means? No judging guilty. None in Jesus. There's none. So, and, and let's look at the second part of that verse. Uh, the Amplified italicizes it. Right? I promise you. Uh, you know, I promise you, anytime you see something italicized in the Bible, the writer didn't write it, okay? I, I mean, that's, I learned that at Rhema Bible Training Center, Andrew Womack School, that if there's something is italicized in the Amplified, the writer didn't write it. So let's read what these translators added in. They weren't supposed to add in. That's why it's italicized. Who, those who walk not after the dictates of the flesh, but after the dictates of the spirit. I was just like, well, I, I lose that just driving to church. I mean, half the time, I'm in the flesh just driving to church. And so I just thought, well, that's not for me. No, 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 no. That's not supposed to be there. There's no condemnation in Jesus. If you hear a sermon and you're condemned, Jesus isn't in that. I don't care who's preaching. I don't care who it is. Let's look at it. Here it is. There's no condemnation. What does that mean? A judging guilty. If someone's making you feel guilty through the preaching, it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Let's just look at the Bible. All right? But, but you're not supposed to stop at, oh, yeah, your flesh is wretched and wallow around in your wretched flesh. All right? Having said that, you have to go beyond that and say, Christ is my new identity, not only with God, but through God with myself. We're talking about identification. That's what they mean by identifying yourself in Christ. You know, all those, those scriptures, pay attention, in him, in whom, by whom, through him. That it, it's, it's talking about what you are, how you're seen. Every time, there's so many of those scriptures. That's what it, they mean by identifying yourself in Christ. Where is your righteousness with God? Does it have anything to do with your flesh, which dwells no good thing? Jesus Christ is the measure of your righteousness with God. God looks at Jesus as your, your righteousness and my righteousness. If God looked to me as my own righteousness, I'm doomed. The question we're asking today is not, are you acceptable to God? That's the wrong question. The devil is going to trample all over you on that one. Because in your flesh dwells no good thing. 
Any Christian asking that of themselves, I believe they are putting themselves under the curse of the law or at least headed that way. I'm gonna tell you something. You, you can't, we've talked so much. I am just trying, I, I was <laughs> talking to my mother last night. I, said, I think I said some controversial things. And she's like, Jim, you just gotta get them to quit thinking about their sin. That's all you're trying to do, you know? We're so, we hear so much about it. Stop this, do that, stop this, start that, stop that, right? Okay, let's look at Galatians 3, 5. This, this is what the whole book is about. He therefore that ministereth to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you. We're talking about miracles. Doeth it he by the works of the law? That's all the rules and regs of the Old Testament. Or by hearing. When you see faith, just put in belief. That's what it means. Hearing of belief. You hear and you believe. How are you going to get the miracle? How are you going to work miracles? You're going to do it through what you do? No. Through hearing and what you believe. All right? And so... Do miracles come from the works of the law or the spirit is what that just asked. So you conclude from that scripture, the law has nothing to do with the spirit. E. Galatians 3, 6, even as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness just because he believed. People say, oh, no, it was accounted to him for righteousness when he put his son Isaac on the altar. That's not true. In man's eyes, man's always going to look at your works. I did a whole sermon on that. We don't have time to talk about that. Let's study it out. God did not account Abraham righteous before he was about to put his knife into his son. He, if you study it out, he accounted him righteous 14 years before that just because he said, I believe. I believe. This is before the law, before the Ten Commandments, all right? Long before that, Galatians 3, 7, and 8. Know ye therefore that they which are of belief, faith, you're supposed to be the same as Abraham, who was extremely successful, and even his mistakes prospered, and was not corrected by God one time. Not one time. Look at verse 8. In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, how is he going to justify the heathen? Through belief. Preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, and all these shall the nations be blessed. Do you know where I believe Abraham heard the gospel? Remember where God told him to count the stars? If you, if you, if you study that, that word count in the Hebrew means read. God said, read the stars. Abraham, I'm not saying let's all look at our, whatever that's called, astrology or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But God created the stars. You look at Revelation, there's signs in the stars. There's already been signs in the stars. He speaks through the stars. Galatians 3, 9 and 10. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Really? It doesn't seem like that to me today. Everybody walking around like Abraham. He was the richest man in the Middle East. His mistakes prospered. Just because you believe that's supposed to be happening. So where's the problem, Jim? Okay, listen now. 
I'm not going to argue about this, right? You need to listen to all six of these. And I'm still not. It, it, it is my opinion that Jesus took care of the sin issue. All right? Right here is telling you why people have problems, why people can't get their healing, why people, you're telling me, it says in Romans, anything not done out of faith is a sin, okay? Anytime you doubt, it's a sin. Anytime you fear, because fear isn't faith, is a sin. Anytime you gossip, is a sin. Anytime you think of a thought too long, is a sin. And all these ways to sin, how's anyone going to get their healing? What I'm telling you is, Sin is not the issue, it's right here. For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. I believe 60% of the body of Christ is walking around under the curse of the law. And Galatians tells you how you get under it. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law. Because here's the thing, there's not a sin scale you can't, you, you, oh, well, here's number one. The Bible never tells us. Here's one through 25, top. You break one, you break them all. You break one, you break them all. And so, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things concerning the law, which are written in the book. You got to do it all, right? And we have so many Christians striving to strive. If I do this, if I do that, am I not saying do anything? No, I'm not saying that. Am I, am I saying let's all go sin? I'm not saying that. I'm saying this will make you closer to God. <laughs> you know, I've heard porn is harder to get off than heroin. Hmm? You, you, try, you try doing it with your will. Try it. It just won't work. For as many as under the works of the law are under the curse. Under the curse. This is why Christians are struggling, I believe, in this day and age. But verse 11. But, but the, the, that no man is justified by the law. You, you, you're not declared not guilty. There, that, that word means not guilty. You're not declared not guilty by your works. Here in this different covenant, in the sight of God, it is evident the justified live because they believe. They live because, by belief. Christ has, re- and then it goes on, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. But it just, this Galatians is written to Christians. He's saying, if you're under the works of the law, you're cursed. He had to hang on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come. Verse 14, Galatians 3, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham is is so much. It's, It's such a big thing that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The question you ask yourself is not, am I acceptable to God? But ask yourself, is Christ acceptable to God? Because God is viewing you through Christ's eyes. Can we put up, uh, I hope they're ready for this, 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the Amplified. This is what I'm talking about. This is, this is Jesus Christ. He was made to be sin on the cross. He, he didn't just take on all the sickness, diseases. He was made to be, no, to be sin. All, everyone's sin. 
He did no sin. So that what? So that what? So that we could become endued with, viewed as being in, as an example of the righteousness of God. How does it define that? Not what you are, what you ought to be. Not what you are right now. You're viewed by God as what you ought to be. It's right there. Okay? What's that? Uh, approved and acceptable. Are you acceptable to God? Yes, you are. There's the answer to the question. Regardless of your sin. And in right relationship with him by his goodness. Remember, as he is, so am I in this world. Jesus Christ is the measure of your acceptance with God. God judged, judges you based on Christ who was already judged for you. That's why it really behooves you to study the features of Jesus in the Gospels because as he is, so are we supposed to be. That is good news. That is good news. Come to the conclusion now, if you haven't, that in your flesh dwells no good thing, but don't stop there. Then you have to take or receive Jesus as your identification because it says in the Bible, that's how God identifies you. I believe it will be a deliverance to not be occupied with yourself, but occupied with Jesus, your new identity. And the next one in a couple weeks, we pick up on Christians operating under the curse, like the Bible says, how they get there, they don't even know they're there half the time, and how they step out of that. And with that, we're going to head right into communion. You guys can, we need motors on those things. Roll them up here. I want to talk to you about communion here. And before that, I, I just want to tell you, it's been an honor doing this for six weeks. Okay? It really has. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed you guys. And um, the nine o'clock is spunkier than normal this morning, that's for sure. <laughs> and I, think, I want to thank my parents for that my name is still somehow on that sign. Okay, so let's look at communion. All right, you guys, let's start passing that out because I got to talk till you're done. All right, and so <laughs> listen. Um, I had a woman <clears throat> in the mall hall this week uh, stop me and uh, she told me that, that uh, I mean, I'll just be straight. She says uh, that um, she, had a, she had a major physical problem, okay? Major physical problem. And it was, it was evident, right? This, this physical problem, she could feel. And I just... We took communion right there, okay? We took communion right there, out there in the mall hall. And I asked her, I said, would you take it three times a day, all right, until it's gone? And, and then go to the doctor and back it up. We got a call not two days later, completely gone, completely gone. Kenneth Hagin Sr. said in that as the end times come, things will speed up. You can take communion on your own, and there is healing in communion, and there's <laughs> done multiple services on it. He called, when, when he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, he called healing children's bread. Children's bread, right? 
the, in this case, I believe it's warm pear juice today. All right. That represents not just the forgiveness of sins, but can you guys think of this? Think of him walking out of that grave. Think of the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, the Bible says you would not be cleared from all guilt. Your sins would have been died for with his death, but he had to be raised and walk out of that grave for you to be the righteousness of God, which the Bible says is a gift. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't earn it. The bread is for healing. I can also prove through scripture, I believe I can, that this, this will renew your youth. God, just think, a bite of an apple plunged mankind into death. Wouldn't it be just like God, a little piece of bread to give us youth? I, remember, I got no makeup on. You heard him say, I didn't have my hands. No, he, he, he told me, he said, and this is just me, he said, four, four times a day until I tell you to stop, Jim. I want you to take communion. You know, people think that's like a half hour. It's like four minutes. You just think of him. You don't need to even say the right, correct Bible words. Jesus. Just Jesus. Break it needed. See him. See his body. See his broken body. Think about his words. Don't do it yet. He said, he said take, eat. This is my body. It was broken for you. Then he says, as often as you do this, he's hint, hint, as often as you do this, he says, remember me, remember me, okay? So can we do that? Receive your healing, receive it. Some of you, he's saying, it doesn't have to be four, once, twice, a day. And you'll have people telling you, you look handsome just out of nowhere too, right? You can stand, you can sit, I'm not supposed to be down here. <laughs> hey, you can stand, you can sit, all right? See Jesus. See his broken body. You can, I just want to make sure you can take what you're supposed to get right now. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Now quicken their mortal bodies, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ. And then he took the cup. Was it? He took the cup. He said, it's the new covenant. Cut in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Thank you for the resurrection, Lord. For the forgiveness of our sins and our righteousness. Thank you, Father. We receive it now. We receive your grace now. We receive your healing now. We receive your answers for business now, for our jobs now, for wayward children, children now, grandchildren. We receive it. And if anything, just the right scripture to pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.